Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening to everyone listening, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 20 of the Well-Read Podcast. I am your host, Megan Bierke, a.k.a. The Real Bookish Writer. I am a reader, writer, bookseller, book festival goer, and I am and always have been obsessed with genre fiction. And today, I have not one, but two incredible interviews to share with you. Both of the books we will be chatting about are some of my only five-star reads of the year and are hands down some of the best books I've read so far in 2024. So let's dive in. My first guest today is the internationally best-selling author of five incredible books. Her newest, Heartless Hunter, released this month and was chosen as one of the Book of the Month club picks for February. Before writing books for a living, she dropped out of college and worked various jobs, including fruit picker, artisanal baker, community bread oven coordinator, bookseller, and potter. She also spent a year living in a punk house. Today, she resides in the Niagara version of Ontario with her husband and their book-obsessed toddler. She is happiest when she's writing stories, reading a good book by a warm fire, or dancing through the house with her daughter. Please welcome Kristen Siccarelli. Well, welcome, 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 Kristen. I am so ridiculously excited to talk to you today. I am a huge fan, and I am like ridiculously obsessed with Heartless Hunter. It's Honestly, it's probably my favorite read of this year so far. And I think I've read 32, 33 books so far. Oh my gosh, thank and, you. And <laughs> like, I already know it's going to be, if not my favorite, one of my like top favorite, like not just fantasy books, but like books in general of this year. Like, it's so, it's so freaking good. I'm so excited. So welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So let's just dive in. It's the question I start all of my interviews off with. Uh, why did you want to become a writer and how did it happen? So, um, well, okay. So I grew up, um, just like writing stories from a young age. Like it was, um, how I entertained myself. So my cousins and I, we all grew up on a farm and we got kicked out of the house all the time. We weren't allowed to watch too much TV. So we had to come up with ways to entertain ourselves. And that was one of the ways that I preferred. So for as long as I remember, really, I've written stories. Um, but I never thought like, I didn't grow up in the time of like, what is it? AO3. I'm not, I'm not a fanfic reader, but I know that's a big thing. Like I didn't, we, we didn't have really the internet when I was growing up. Um, so I like becoming an author was never like a thing that I thought you could do. Like I thought it wasn't like becoming a teacher or becoming a doctor, like where you were like, you could envision yourself maybe becoming that. Um, authors were more like unicorns. Um, they were like imaginary creatures and you didn't get to be them. Um, and then I, about in my early 20s, um, I was working this like really boring desk job. And like the first thing I would do in the morning would be um, to check this blog of this author whose book I had just read. And it was the blog of Kristen Kishore. Um, So I had just, it, I think it was Graceling had, had just come out at the time. And it was like, this is the kind of book that I love. This is the kind of stories that I, that I would love to write. Um, and so I just, I looked her up and she had this blog. And so every morning I was checking her, her, her blog, um, and reading it. And, and it kind of just made me realize that authors are real people. Like Kristen Kishore is this real person who has these like real problems and like, and like, and a real life. And if, if 
maybe I could be an author too, if, if they're just real people. Um, and so that is when I decided that I would start taking my like writing seriously and like submitting it to agents and stuff. Um, and then that's sort of how it happened. So it was like basically Kristen Kishore's blog. <laughs> I like it. And her Graceling series is great. Yes. And I've actually heard a lot of people say that they were influenced by uh, Graceling. So that's really, that's really cool. Oh, interesting. Now, what is it about fantasy though, that drew your interest and why did you choose to write fantasy? Yeah. Um, I think I was always into fantasy, um, books and, um, movies and everything. Um, I think it's because growing up, like I saw girls go getting to like go on adventures and like hold these sort of like positions of power that had historically you only saw like boys and men get to hold in stories I for some reason for me like that is where I found like myself kind of reflected I guess in fantasy so like for example um Sabriel or Sabriel depending on how you pronounce it like all of like I found that book in the bookstore and it was like this is a girl who can bind the dead with bells like and it was just like I want to be like this girl or like there was something like I saw something there that was like myself reflected back um and and it was like you kind of like I guess a mirror so I, I think fantasy for me that's how it started it was like I would see and I saw so the forgotten beast of eld is like my one of my favorite books of all time I think I read it at 12 it's like this powerful sorceress who lives by herself on a mountaintop um she gets to star in her own book like it was just like so for me it was like that was my the draw for fantasy it was like all of these women that I wanted to be like um getting to have their own cool stories um and I think as time went on especially like as I started writing fantasy more I think the thing I love and the thing I love today about fantasy is like it's basically just like one like it's just like um metaphor basically like you can change you can make anything um a metaphor so like my first book was about stories these, these forbidden stories learn luring these deadly dragons and so basically obviously that's a metaphor for like how powerful stories can be um or um in my my second book um there like basically there's a bomb that's so strong that it prevents someone from um being able to like pass into the next life and so they're kind of like trapped and so like it's a, it's about grief and not being able to let go and like so so it's like you can you can infuse these like real things um with magic and make them into these like bigger like cooler things um and I think there's just something about that that I love yeah so a heartless hunter it was just announced so I can totally talk about this now because I just got my copy in the mail uh it was announced as one of the book of the month picks for February which is yeah. so very exciting and I immediately picked that as my pick like I said can you talk about like how that happened like and what that like because that's so freaking cool to be picked as one of these as one of these like four or five picks like how does yeah. it feel to be one of those like very well-deserved <laughs> picks um yeah well okay so first of all I am so so grateful to book of the month club um because yeah it is like such a huge honor to be picked by them um their books the books that they pick like it's just like an honor to be among the picks <laughs> like it's just it's very I'm very very thankful um to them um to be honest I so I'm Canadian um I didn't actually know what book of the month 
was until my editor was like, hey, guess what? This was a couple months ago. Um, book of the Month Club wants your book for February. And like we had to do a bunch of things. Um, and I was like, okay, that sounds great. But like, what is Book of the Month? And then anyway, so I didn't actually know what it was. Um, now I do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it feels it feels very, very amazing. <laughs> now, yeah. is that something that like your publishing team submits to them, do you know, or do they reach out? I believe that um, they submitted the book. Like, I believe they okay. probably just get tons and tons of books submitted to them. Um, but I'm not totally sure about that. Um, I, I, I'm sure that, though, that my publisher sent them a, a like an advanced galley or something. That's so exciting because but it's also very well deserved because it's just like I said, this book is so freaking good. And I'm completely obsessed with it. Now, it is loosely based on the Scarlet Pimpernel. And mm -hmm. I am a huge fan of the, yeah, I think it's yeah. like the 1982 movie. I think yeah, it's yeah. like the BBC movie with Ian McKellen and Anthony, I think Andrews and stuff. Yeah. Um, and I actually bought it on Apple TV like three or four weeks ago, which is weird. Oh, nice. um, okay. Cause I was like, I, I want to rewatch this for some reason. And so when I saw that, I was like, this, of course I'm going to love this. But anyways, it's my little rant on the Scarlet Pimpernel. But how did you know you wanted it to be loosely based on that? Or, like, was it something that just naturally happened? Was it a, an actual point of inspiration for you? Yeah. So it, it definitely was the inspiration for Heartless Hunter. So I also love that film. That's like my favorite version. Um, other than the book slash play that she actually wrote. But um. Yeah, so I think I I first was introduced to the Scarlet Pimpernel in like grade school, like maybe I don't know, grade six, seven, eight, something like that. And we saw the play. We like went as a trip, like a class trip. Um, and ever since then, I've loved that story. And every like I don't know, every once in a while, I just get this like itch to like reread the books, um, and then like watch the film, and then watch the TV show, and then try like so. So I was going through like one of these binges where it's like I just needed more and more Pimpernel. I think I watched. This was like maybe four or five years ago. And I think I watched the movie like like twice twice in a row, like back to back and like maybe another time, like the next day or a couple of days later. Like I was just like, so for some reason, it was just like, I just need to soak this story up. And um, and so I got to kind of the end of the binge and I was just, I just wasn't done. Like my itch wasn't scratched and there was, but there was nothing really. Like there, there aren't that many retellings. Um, and so I was like, maybe I should just write something to like scratch my own itch. And that's honestly how like the very first like spark of the story. So I, I knew that I wanted like that sort of, the, that sort of framing. So it's like post-revolution, um, but instead of these like aristocrats, these French aristocrats getting beheaded, what if they were, I didn't have witches in my mind at the time, but I definitely had magic users. So they, they were some kind of magic user. Um, and that is kind of where it, it kind of just like was like off to the races from there. Yeah. Now, this may speak more to like the actual writing aspect of it rather than like the story itself. But this book has so many incredible tropes and it's so well done. Like you have the forbidden romance, you have enemies to lovers, fake courting, slow burn. You got the cat and mouse, morally gray characters. But, you know, it also has this incredible tension and banter and these amazing like this amazing chemistry. You know, it's got witches and witch hunters. It's got this unique magic system, which we'll talk a little bit about that later. Um, secrets, betrayal, band magic. But like, I feel like very easily it could have gotten so like combobulated, if that makes sense, like so heavy yeah. and kind of confusing where things didn't tie necessarily. And it was just a lot. But this book, like you wrote it so well. Like I never felt overwhelmed. I never felt like any of these things were out of place. 
I never felt like it overwhelmed the plot or the characters. Like it was, it's just, it's so well-written. So how did you manage to put all of these amazing things together in one book without it overpowering the story itself? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, this question came up recently um, with someone else. And like, like I, I feel like tropes are like now, we just, we talk about tropes all the time, all of a sudden, whereas like maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, we weren't really so much. And I, But I feel like tropes are kind of in the, I don't know, the air these days. Um, and I honestly never set out to write any of those tropes. It's only like, it's only looking back that I'm like, oh yeah. And I could like check all of, like check all of them off, like go down a list. I honestly, I sat down to write this book. It was originally inspired, like I said, by the Scarlet Pimpernel. I wanted it to be post-revolution witches, uh, which, and I did obviously want a witch hunter, witch, witch hunter, but that was inspired by like the Scarlet Pimpernel and uh, what's his name? Chauvelin? No. Chauvelin. Yeah. Chauvelin. Yeah. Um, That sounds right. So like, so someone is like hunting someone else and the other person is evading them. Um, and then I just kind of, I decided it, they were witches because I needed a, a type of magic user. Um, and then, and I, basically I decided, so this is my one, two, three, four, five, my fifth book. Um, and with this book, I was like, and I had just had a baby. Um, and this doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's relevant, but I had like, when you're like in that sort of like postpartum phase, um, you are like in survival mode. Like you cannot care about anything except for like surviving and like making sure your kid survives. Um, and so it was just like, I, I sat down to write this story and I was like, and it had been percolating for years, this like story in the back of my mind, but like, I was literally sitting down to write it now. And I was like, I am just going to write the story that I want to write. I do not care what anyone else thinks of it. If everyone else hates it, I do not care. I'm not, I'm just going to write exactly what I want. And so somehow all of those things, like all of those tropes that we love just kind of like kind of got woven in because those are the things I, I loved. Those are the things I wanted, but I never sat down to be like, okay, how can I like put enemies to lovers or how can I um, put uh unique magic? So, I mean, I mean, it was just, yeah, it was just, it sort of, to be honest, it felt like a very inspired book. Like it was just like, I wrote it really quickly the first the very first draft draft and even like the first like the the plot like I outlined very heavily my plots before I start writing the the current like the uh finished product like the book that you get in the mail or off the shelf um is so similar to like that first draft and even that original plot like it was just like I just had it in my head and I just it was like almost like it was like coming to me and I just had to like madly get it all down so I really I almost like feel like I can't really take total credit for it because it's like I'm not really sure how how it all came together (laughs) it was like well so I know it's not a satisfying answer but no but I wonder if that's why it works so well like you have all these things in this book but they don't seem forced like they're very natural because it wasn't necessarily something that you thought about you know it just naturally happened as you were writing the story because I've I just finished a different book and I'm not going to say which one it was but it had a lot of similar things in it but they all felt forced and discombobulated Mm -hmm. like they didn't it didn't feel cohesive and then like I read this and I'm like well it's it can like it can work it's clearly something that can work and I was just like I said I was just so impressed with everything in this book and it's like, I don't want people to, that are listening to this to think that this book is like dense or heavy. You know what I'm talking about? Like this book is, it's fast paced and it's good and everything fits so freaking well. And it's so well written, Kristen. 
Like this book is so well written and the characters and anyways, I could literally just talk for like 20 minutes on how much I love this book, but I do want to ask because, and I don't, I don't want to spoil anything for people, Okay, but at the end, there is a big reveal Mm -hmm. and, you know, this big kind of twist. Was that something that you initially knew as well that you wanted to take place? I think, well, so like I said, the final version is very similar to my outline. Um, So it was definitely in my outline, that twist. But I I think as I was writing the outline, um, it was like, oh, what if this? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I didn't necessarily start out thinking like, like the twist is the twist. Um, It definitely, as I was like, as the story was coming together in the outline, it just made sense, I guess. And then I had to like go back and like insert the little clues and all that sort of thing. Yeah. When that idea kind of first came to you, did you know that it was going to be the character that it ends up being? Yes. Yeah. Pretty straight off the bat. Yeah. Now, the magic system itself is very, very unique. Like they're witches, it's magic, but it's blood magic. And they the witches need blood to do their spells. And, you know, the fresher, the better. But cutting themselves to use their blood it leaves a silver scar behind, which is how the blood guard uh, looks for the witches to hunt. And the blood guards, the ones that, like I just said, they're the ones that they hunt and kill the witches. How did you come up with this kind of system? You know, was there anything that influenced it? You know, why did you choose specifically, like the witches have this power within them, but it gives a, you know, it gives them a scar, which is something to identify them with. Like, cause hmm. it's just, it's so unique. I don't think I've ever read anything like that. How did you come up with it? Well, thank you. Um, yeah. So I think like, so basically it goes back to, again, it goes back to the Scarlet Pimpernel. So I was like thinking about how it's like, okay, so if these people, so witches were once in power before the book, before the book opens, um, witches were, witches ruled, it was the reign of witches, um, and they were overthrown. And so, and like the, like in general, like if you are of like the upper class, like you like to, um, show off your wealth, right? So it's like, it depends and it, and it, it can kind of like, there are trends, right? So it's like, okay, you, you drive a Lamborghini maybe, or you, you have a Rolex or you wear, you have like a certain type of suit that you, um, like that's cut a certain way. And, and it's just, it's a way of, of showing that like you are in like the upper crust of society or whatever. Um, and so I was like, how can I do that? Like, how can I do that with my witches? Um, and so that those things will be permanent so that when it flips and there is this revolution and now they're on the bottom, all of those things that they boast like the the thing that they boasted about now becomes like a mark on their back um and so and that's why I went with blood magic because it's like obviously that's how like that's how it works right like you have to draw the magic somehow and so it's going to leave a mark and then so like how can I make it so that um so basically like there are these in the old days before the revolution there are these scar artists um and so witches have these beautiful scars they're kind of like tattoos a lot like they're basically i'm basing a lot of the designs um on tattoos um and so there's like floral like floral scars or like nautical scars or like lacework scars um and they're showing them off um and then those things are used to hunt them down i don't know it just it like again it like i needed like i needed to solve a problem like a concrete problem like how i need something that marks them that was um like this and now it's this um so it was like boastful and now it's like you don't want you don't want these scars on you um and yeah and i think too like um 
like I mentioned, um, the Abhorsen series, so Sabriel or Sabriel, um, like those, like there's, there are these magic systems that are just like, I just want to write a magic system as good as that. So like the Abhorsen, the, Abhor the magic system in the Abhorsen, um, trilogy, although I guess it's more of a series now, there's more books. Um, I just feel like that is like one of those magic systems that has stuck with me and it's kind of like haunts me. It's like, how can I write a cool, a cool, like, I don't think it's, I know it's nowhere near as cool as that, but it's like, that is kind of like the bar for me. It's like, I want to write, I want to write a cool magic system like that. Um, and so I am, so maybe that was part of it too. Like it was kind of, how can I, how can I make this really cool? <laughs> I don't know. No, with Rune, it was very interesting. And I don't think that this is going to spoil anything because this is pretty close to the beginning, like where she gets her blood from. So mm -hmm. because oh, yeah. at this point this she can't, I was like, yeah, because I was like, it's at the beginning. It, does, it doesn't count. Uh, she can't scar herself or she chooses not to scar herself because of who she is. You know, she is this the Crimson Moth and she rescues these witches. And so she can't have these scars on her because she's trying to not get caught and, you know, killed by the by the blood guard and so she ends up using her period blood um and that's the blood that she uses for her magic and i don't think same like i said earlier i don't think i've ever seen anything like that so why was that the outlet that you chose for her to use mm -hmm. and also i just feel like it's not common for people to talk about women's periods which is such right. a natural <laughs> like regular occurrence for right. half the population so why did you choose to go that route yeah so like I never, again, it was like, I need to solve this problem. She can't cut herself. Um, she can't because then these scars form. Um, so how is she going to cast spells? And it's like, well, like, <laughs> I know that, like, I know a way that she can get blood once a month um, because it happens like <laughs> to uh, like half the population. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, it was never, I don't, I didn't necessarily set out to be like, let's normalize periods. Let's talk about this. Um, it was more like, yeah, this happens. Um, of course she would use her period blood. <laughs> and again, it was like, it was like a solution to a problem, like a, a problem that I had like written myself into. Um, but yeah, it has the added ben benefit of, of norm like talking about periods in like this roundabout way. And I think too, like, cause it is like, she is 18. Right. And so a, a lot of, and it, and it is a YA book, although I do think it's upper YA. Um, like it is something that as a teenage girl, like it's like just really shitty. Like you have to sit in class with like these cramps and like you, and sometimes you bleed through and like you're at school and then what do you do? And like all these things. So I just wanted to like give like kind of a shout out or something. Like, it's like, I almost like, yeah, I see you like, um, and this thing sucks, <laughs> but and it's like, but, and, but then I also make it this like, thing of power for rune and for like witches because it's like the onset of their first period is when they get their magic um so yeah i wanted to do a whole bunch of things with that i guess well yeah. and one thing i appreciate is that you didn't make her having a period and her using the blood from her period like for her magic you didn't make it an issue like it wasn't like with the other characters, it wasn't like, oh, like that's what you're using. Why don't you try and find a different source of blood? You know, it's it was just a natural like, yeah, that's a brilliant idea. Like, absolutely. And I really I really appreciated that because you didn't villainize that part of her. Yeah. Um, and okay. it just I really I really liked that aspect of it. I thought that was a really cool route to go. Yeah. Uh, now, the book is also a dual POV which I love. I love myself a good dual POV. 
And you have chapters from both Rune and Gideon, who are two very different characters in a lot of respects, but they're also very similar in certain aspects. Mm-hmm. When you same thing, like when you started writing, did you know that you wanted to give us both sides of the story? Or was it again, was it just something that just naturally happened? Like, why was it important to have both sides of the story? I think so for me, so the first four books I wrote were only um, just one POV. Um, and it is easier in some respects and others. I mean, maybe it's harder in other respects, but I was just like, I wanted for, so the first thing is I wanted to challenge myself. I, I was always sort of daunted by multiple points of view. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. Um, but also I think because Rune and Gideon, um, they are coming from like such totally different positions in their society, um, both in the past and in the present. Um, and also they have these, like, both of them have these like deep wounds, um, and these, and these pasts that influence like how they think about the world and about themselves, um, and like their motivations for doing what they do in the story. So I think like without, so if I had just written runes POV, I think without Gideon's, it would be, you could easily misunderstand him and, and vice versa. So I just wanted, I, I wanted, um, I wanted you to really know why both of these characters were in the place that they were in and were doing the things that they were doing, because it is like, it is kind of a morally gray situation, the whole thing. Um, and, and characters have to make morally gray decisions or have had to make them in the past. Um, and so that was just the best way I think that I could really give the reader that sort of understanding of a, of a character, both characters. And as a reader, I don't think the story would have had the same impact on me if it would have only been one POV because they are so very different, but both of their perspectives are important to the story and their development, like even together, like their development as a couple or whatever, like it really helped me understand why Gideon did the things he did and, you know, why he is a blood guard. And it helped me understand why Rune, you know, tries to find these witches and tries to save them. And it just, it just worked so well. I know I keep saying that, but this book is just so good, Kristen, on so many levels. Um, and last thing, I didn't put this on the list, but um, I am interested. And again, I, I'm not going to say this is a spoiler because it happens in like the first chapter, first couple chapters. Rune ends up turning in her grandmother, like when this whole kind of thing happens um, and these the blood guard you know, they're hunting these witches and kind of this revolution happens. Rune ends up turning in her grandmother because her grandmother says, look, we're not going to survive. Like, you need to go do this. Like, I have, I need to sacrifice myself so that you can live. Why was that the catalyst for the beginning of the book and for Rune's journey? Like, why? Because that's a heavy, heavy, heavy thing to sacrifice the woman who has raised you, you know, who has taught you all these things that you're so close with. Like, why was that important for Rune to do? That is a really good question. It's interesting because I originally had it, um, the very first, the very first version, it isn't her grandmother's idea. Um, she just does it because she's terrified of, of being killed, basically. Um, and it's funny because, like, I found readers, like, were so put off by her, um, if, like, when that was her, when that was what she did. But, like, like publishing people loved it it was really interesting it was like okay so I had to find a way to kind of like how can I 
do what I want to do, which is like rune turning in her grandmother, but do it in a way that is a little bit more, you can understand her a little bit more. Um, but I think like her whole, her whole arc is like wanting redemption um, for that act. Um, and she does that by saving all, all of these witches and in particular her grandmother's best friend um, from the past. But it's like basically about like self-forgiveness too. Um, and I think it was just like, that was just a theme that I was thinking about a lot in my life at the time. And so I wanted to kind of give that to Rune. And so that was that was the mode that I, I gave it to her. So like, um, and I grew up raised by my grandmother. So I was like, what's like the worst thing that you could do or you could be like basically forced to do um, and then have to come to terms with and have to forgive yourself, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> this morbid way. <laughs> Um, yeah, like yeah, I read no, that it's like I I just feel like so many people struggle with like self-hatred um and like and just need to be free of that and so so yeah so um that's that was that was originally my my inspiration for that yeah I read that at the beginning and I was like oh my god like we are starting off like, super <laughs> strong like we are just delving into this this is oh my goodness I was like this is gonna be a heck of a book because like I said that happens yeah. kind of at the very beginning um, but it, and it's also like it's a thing that that people have done right throughout uh -huh. history like, it happened um during the holocaust it happened during the Ref russian revolution like 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 family members turning in family members um because mm -hmm. they were scared or because um maybe they believed that that was what they should have done and like and just like and that's just such an interesting like how do you get to that anyways it's i'm i'm fascinated by that sort of very dark um decision or action but yeah anyway yeah because I like you said it's happened throughout history and I can't like I can't imagine having to be in that situation to mm -hmm. make that decision like that's yeah it's I'm telling again this book started off strong and it didn't let go um last thing I do want to kind of talk about is the relationship between Rune and Gideon they again I don't think this is a spoiler like anyone who knows the Scarlet Pimpernel is kind of going to kind of know like the gist of this, but they end up, it starts as them using each other, right? Their relationship, but it evolves into something. It's so good. Like the, the banter, the, like them bringing the good out of each other. And it's like them balancing each other. How did you write those characters and keep them true to who they were, but also you know, respecting their past, but also understanding that their point of view isn't necessarily the only one, if that makes any sense at all whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can I just rephrase that? So how did I write yes. them? How did I write those characters, like being true to their like flawed selves, but also um, like evolving as the story. Yeah. To yeah. Some, something like maybe better, um, like a better version of themselves. Um. I don't know <laughs> you're like it just naturally happened <laughs> well I mean yeah it's like I think okay so so one of your one of your questions I think it might be in like maybe the lightning round so I'm I'm well like I'll just skip there and then we can come back but I, I think it's like what's like the one like one piece of advice that you were given or the best piece of advice that you're given mm -hmm. as a writer and it's like and I think it's probably like um, decide where you want your character to end up, like who you want them to be at the end of the story and then start them in the opposite place. And then 
everything else is about that transformation. Like how, in particular, like how does the plot in a lot of ways force them to become that person, like force them to make decisions and have realizations um, to become that person. And so I think I, it was already sort of like slotted in, in my mind that it's like, okay, this is where they start, but then they, then they encounter this and that has to like sort of um, jar them a little bit. And maybe they still like, they're, maybe they're still going to dig their heels in because no, like they're entrenched, right? They're in their beliefs or about the world or whatever, but then they continue on in their like obsession and then they hit another wall and this wall is like much bigger and then they have to like reevaluate. And so, and eventually the walls get so big that you, um, you have to change, right? I mean, at the, at the end, of, like their journey isn't complete. There's two books. So, so by the end of the first book, they're not done that transformation. Um, but yeah, they are different people than they were at the beginning. Or you could say they're more more truly themselves um, at the end than they were at the beginning, um, depending on how you view character. But Depending on how you look at it. And that's, I was going to ask you that. Is it like, do you know that it's going to be two books? Is it a duology? Yeah. Um, originally, I had this like um, crisis last spring where I sent where I like sent my editor this like well it was first my agent and then my editor I was like I think this is <laughs> turning into three books because I was like writing it and like I was halfway through but I was only like a quarter of the way through my outline and I was like <laughs> this book is gonna be gigantic <laughs> anyways no so it's two books um it's it's just two books and honestly like the second book I hope I don't want to like jinx it but I think like, if you love the first book, I think you will also love the second book. Because it was like, I had so much fun writing the first book. And I had even more fun writing the second book. Because it's like, I don't know. It's just really fun. <laughs> I hope it's I as fun so excited. as it was writing it. Yeah. I'm so excited. And is it coming out next year, I'm assuming? I think so. They, people keep asking me for a pub date. But okay. I don't know why. I think they just haven't slotted in their dates. Like, I think they're, like, um, my publisher is like, they have all their dates until the end of the year, but I don't think they've started like January, February. I assume it'll come out January, February of next year, okay. but I don't know. Um, but the book is done. It's with my editor. I'm waiting for my line edits. So uh, this is one of the things that uh, irritates me to no end is that when I finish a good book that, that ends on a cliffhanger, I know, like Sorry. Heartless Hunter does, I have to wait a whole year. And especially like, cause I'm lucky enough to be able to read a lot of the books that I read in advance of the publishing date. So I'm like, I can't even talk about this book because it's not even out yet. And I can't spoil it for people. This book is so good though, Kristen. Like, I know I keep saying that, but this book is so freaking good. So <laughs> let's uh, jump into our closing questions. You can be as succinct or as open as you want about these, but what is your favorite genre to read? Like if you could only pick one for the rest of your life, what would it be? I think I'd have to say fantasy. I'm like, it's like, it's almost a tie between fantasy and romance, but if I could only pick one, I would pick fantasy. Do you like like a specific one? Like, do you like high fantasy? Do you like urban fantasy? Does it, does I, it matter? It has to be like high, yeah, high or epic fantasy, I'd say. It needs to be kind of like quick, quickly paced. It needs to have a good magic system. Um, it needs to have a romance, a romantic subplot at the very least. Um, yeah. So I have conditions, but yeah. Yeah. I'm, my fantasy has to have romance in it or I can't, like, I can't stay interested. And I feel like it's been like that ever since I was young. Like, obviously the romance is much different than what yeah. I read when I was, you know, 10 as compared to now, but like, I'm the same way. It has to have that undercurrent of something under there. So I've now, always been the same. 
yeah, it, I don't know why. It's just that's always been me. Now, if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Okay. I think, can I pick two? Absolutely. <laughs> I would love to write um, Grumpy Sunshine. Um, and I would love to write a bodyguard romance. But like, yeah. make it fantasy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, that's all I'm going to say. Yes. Have you read um, This Fish is Grace by Emily Thede? I have, I have it on my shelf. I just haven't read it yet. So yeah. that one is a good why fantasy, like with romance bodyguard one. That's a really good one to okay. read if, yeah. if you're looking for and one to read. One but... out, so I could just read the yeah. second one. It's complete. Exactly. You don't, you, you don't have to wait. Now, what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list next? So I actually just finished, let me look up the title of this because I'm going to screw it up. Um, I just finished, oh gosh. Bomb is her last name. Courtney Bomb. It's um Courtney Mom. Sorry, A M A U M. Um, and it's before and after the book deal. And then the subtitle is the writer's guide to finishing, publishing, promoting, and surviving your first book. And I found it to be honest, like it was a little too. I really highly recommend it to debut authors and um writers who are wanting to be published so like maybe you're in the querying stage maybe you have an agent but you don't book deal all that stuff it's I found it like really solid like for because I don't I find that like publishing just does not prepare you it just like it just throws you in to the to the ocean with with the sharks like and this just like hopes you survive and it was just like it was so good like it just laid out everything if I wish I had had it when I was debuting like either just before or in my debut in my debut year so I highly recommend that to writers. Um, and I, I read it because it was um, it was recommended by uh, Carly Waters, who is an agent, who, again, if you're a writer, I really highly recommend following her on, especially on Instagram. Um, she just has lots of great advice and tips and stuff. But um, I just started, um, like literally just cracked it open. Like I'm on the first chapter. Love Theoretically by Ellie Hazelwood. Yeah, so that is like my next up, I guess. You can't go wrong with Ellie. Yeah. Well, I also want to read Bride. I was like, I feel like I need to get through some of her backlist. Maybe I don't, but anyway, I have love theoretically, so I should read that first. <laughs> and I will, uh, I'm going to buy that book today, the first one that you were talking about, because I'm, okay, yeah. I write YA gothic fantasy and I'm like right at the very beginning of the querying stage. Okay. And so like, that sounds like exactly the book I need. So I'm yeah. going to, uh, it just, I'm going it's to like, buy that hard truths basically and like but it's like it's good it's like juicy meaty and like it's like very kind of self-deprecating too like it's just like it's like like a writer wrote this for writers like it's just it's solid yeah good to know okay I'm gonna check that out thank you for that recommendation that actually fits perfectly now we already kind of talked about what the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to writing so we're gonna skip ahead so if you weren't an author experience education money none of that mattered and you could do anything else in the world what would you do oh goodness okay if I okay because originally I was gonna say I would go back to working in bakeries because that's what I did or like I was a baker and then I was a potter but I I would I think I would go back to baking over pottery um but if I didn't have if it if like money was no issue if I could just do anything I don't know probably right (laughs) or like I would go back to school for illustration maybe um that's something I've always 
like I feel like I wish I would have done I, I I got into like a really great art school when I was younger and I chickened out and I didn't go and I'm always like what if I had gone um maybe nothing but yeah so I guess maybe that is what I would do you are a woman of multiple talents. I am so impressed. I do want to, though, I do want to ask about your bakery background. What happened with yeah. that? Because that interests me to no end, like people who bake like that. Yeah. So I, it was, it was, um, I was really lucky. Um, it was like this mom and pop bakery. And like, I say mom and pop and it sounds like kind of cutesy, but it was like, like heart, like they, they were hardcore bakers, like very kind of almost like sn snobby bakers. Like they had like um like standards not that other bakers don't but like like it was very difficult to please them is basically what I mean um and they, it was like a sourdough from scratch artisanal bakery um and they did a lot of French pastries um and it was just them the two of them married couple and they just had a kid and I just came by one day they needed someone to sweep their floors and like um I think it was like open the cash for the first two hours while while she was getting like her kid down to the getting ready and then coming down to the store um and so like literally for just like two hours a day that's all I did I like swept the floors I like windexed the windows I served the customers um and then slowly gradually they started needing more me there more often and like then they started letting me help and like teaching me how to how to make the pastries and do the bread and like all that stuff and like they just really were kind to me and like took me kind of under their wing. And so that was where I started. Um, and then they sold it. And, um, so I left when they sold it and I, and I've just, I did other, I worked in other bakeries, mostly baking bread. Um, I was also, I worked at a nonprofit, um, me and my coworker, we like ran this outdoor wood-fired bake oven. It was like a community bake oven. Um, and we ran like programs. We made like pizza and pretzels and fun stuff like that. Um, That's yeah, cool. I don't bake, as much as I used to, I used to be really hardcore baker. I also don't make pottery as much as I, oh, I don't make it at all. I used to be, that used to be my life too. So yeah. It's, yeah. That's, that's so freaking cool. What is your favorite thing to bake? Probably sourdough bread. Yeah. Yeah. Sourdough. Oh, now I want fresh bread. <laughs> or, okay. Or chocolate chip peanut butter cookies. <laughs> I have like a weakness for chocolate chip peanut butter cookies. Yeah. Nice. Oh God. Now I'm going to have cravings all, all freaking day. Yeah, me too. All freaking day. <laughs> now, if you could invite any person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? Yeah, I would definitely invite my grandfather, um, who is no longer here. And I don't know, like, I feel like I would love, like, there are people in your lives who you only know them, especially like grandparents or like old people who are sort of at the tail end of your life when you're kind of at the beginning of it. And it's just like, what were they like when they were like my age now? Like, what was my grandfather like? I would love to like invite my grandparents, my grandfather in particular, um, at like 40 or something um, over for dinner. I think that would just be, it would be, yeah, interesting. Interesting. So now if you can invite a fictional person over for dinner, who would you invite? I could, I had such a difficult time uh, with this question. I think probably it would be like, Moana or um maybe Elsa or like someone that like my daughter would be really excited about because I couldn't I couldn't come up with anyone um yeah who's her favorite she loves well she loves Moana she loves uh Lilo from Lilo and Stitch um yeah she loves Elsa she loves Elsa's let it go uh whole like that whole scene <laughs> so any of those 
any of those. Very nice. Now, where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to both domestically and internationally? Because you're in Canada, domestically is a little different, but I still want to know where in Canada you'd want to go. Okay. So if you're familiar with Canada, we have a, like a great white North. Um, and like there are one of the provinces, um, is a place called Labrador and it's just like very, very far North. Um, and there's this place called the Torngats or the Torngat mountains. And I've always wanted to go there, but like, it's, you, it's like very difficult to get there cause it's so remote. Um, and you need like polar bear guides and stuff because there's polar bears wandering around all the time. Um, but yeah, I would love to one day go there. I don't know if I'll that if that's like feasible, but um people do do it. Uh so that's domestically. And then internationally, I'd love to go to Slovenia because my my grandfather actually, but my mom's whole maternal side is from Slovenia. Um and I've never been and I would just love to go. See wow, where. that's cool. Yeah. That'd be cool. Now, last question, what currently brings you joy? I think um the sunshine right now like it's we've had where we are it's just been gray 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 this winter like the sun is never out and yesterday um no yeah Saturday uh we were just outside like swinging on the swings maybe it was Friday actually and like playing I spy and stuff like my husband and me and my daughter and our dog and it was just like beautiful <laughs> it's like yeah that's what brings me joy like moments like that I guess very nice. Well, thank you so much, Kristen, for being here. It was an honor to chat with you. And if you couldn't tell, I'm obsessed with this book. So I'm so excited for it to be out and for other people to read this. And I cannot wait for the second one. But thank you so much for being here. It was an honor. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for the first interview of this episode. So let's jump into the second. My next guest is a best-selling and award-winning author of books for young people, including the instant New York Times bestseller, The Reader, Prince Honor Book and National Book Award finalist We Are Not Free, and National Book Award longlisted A Thousand Steps In Tonight. Her latest title is Kindling, a YA fantasy reimagining of Seven Samurai. She has served on judging committees for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature and the PEN America Phyllis Naylor Grant, and is currently on faculty at the Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing at the University of Nevada, Reno. When she isn't writing, she enjoys hiking, egg painting, gardening, and hosting game nights for family and friends, and she currently lives in California with her beautiful dog. Please welcome Tracy Chi. Well, welcome, 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 Tracy. I am like beyond tickled to talk to you today because I'm telling you, I am obsessed, obsessed, obsessed with this book that you have coming out, uh, but we will get to that. But welcome. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to talk with you. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I think this is going to be a great conversation. Absolutely. I'm, like I said, I'm just beyond tickled because this book, like it kind of changed my brain chemistry, I feel like. And a lot of the time when I read a book, because I read so many throughout the year, I read the book and then, you know, I'm constantly on to the next one, onto the next one. And I really don't give the books that I finished, like they really don't sit with me just because I'm constantly rotating through books. But I have thought about this book since I finished it, like days and days and days ago. And it's just like, the more I think about it, the more I love it. So like I said, we'll get to that. So let's start off though with the question that I start every single interview off with. It's why did you want to become a writer and how did it happen? Um, okay, first, I, I do want to hear about this brain chemistry change. That sounds so intriguing to me. Um, but yeah, so how I became a writer, let's see, um, it started with me being a reader. I think that's how a lot of us get started. You know, I was 
um, a huge reader of science fiction and fantasy when I was like in third and fourth grade. And, you know, science fiction and fantasy turned me into a reader. I was like in the adult section of the library, like combing through like all the Dragon Riders of Pern books by Anne McCaffrey. Like that was my, that was like what made me voracious for books. Um, but I didn't actually want to become a writer until I discovered video games. <laughs> it was uh, seventh grade and some like one of my classmates recommended that I play Final Fantasy VII, which is a JRPG, a Japanese RPG, a role-playing game. And like that style of game is, is kind of this huge magical Final Fantasy VII also has like this technological element to it world where you're kind of thrust right into the story and you feel like you are kind of living through it with the characters and like that blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, like a story can do this. Like, 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 uh, you know, fantasy could do this to you to make you feel so involved. And that is what made me want to write video games. <laughs> um, and so like, I, I started trying to you know, develop my own video game, like write the story, create the world, the characters, the magic, etc. But I was, you know, I was 12 and this was in the 90s. And so I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't even know if this was like a real job. Um, I did at one point send a fax to Square Enix, the makers of Final Fantasy VII, being like, oh, hi, I'm Tracy Chi and I'm, you know, in seventh grade and I have this really good idea for a video game. If you want to, you know, work with me, just like, please let me know. Um, they never let me know. <laughs> um, and But because, you know, I didn't really have anywhere to go with it. Um, I started writing fan fiction about Final Fantasy VII and quickly got bored of that because I was very bad at writing fan fiction. <laughs> um, and then I started writing original fiction. And so by the time I was out of high school, you know, applying to colleges, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. Um, that was just kind of the thing that that I just I felt in my heart was, was my path. Um, and so like first books, then video games, and then writing. So what is it about fantasy that you love? Like why, why fantasy? Oh my gosh. I, you know how some things just speak to your soul and like set your heart on fire you know that's what I feel like speculative fiction does for me it's just it's such a wonderful place to be in where so many things that are impossible for us today could be possible right like you know when I was in fourth grade I think it was like writing fire breathing dragons to like defend the planet and like the dragon riders of Pern series or like you know finding a portal through the wardrobe like amazing like and, and having these incredible life-changing world-changing adventures right that's that's such a powerful kind of place to be as a reader but then there's like other elements of science fiction and fantasy that I've really come to appreciate as I've gotten older um, for example, the way that, you know, these speculative genres can help us reimagine the world that we live in today. Like, what could be possible if we didn't have this restriction or that restriction? Like, what kind of equality could we have or or what kind of um, different social structures could we have? I think that's such a powerful thing, too. Um, and so there's just it's where my heart lives <laughs> and I feel like I'm always going to go back to it. There's something truly special about fantasy 
And I just, I love that you have this genre, but there's so many different books that take that genre and you have so many different experiences and you can have a different experience in every single book that you read in the genre. Like it's just, it was the, it was the fantasy. It was the genre that got me into reading when I was a little kid. And so I appreciate that as well. But I do want to ask, I do want to cut back to your video games. Are you still a video gamer? Um, unfortunately, I am very bad at them. And this is why <laughs> I gravitated towards uh, JRPGs, because like they used to be like these turn based battle systems. So like it felt like you could just kind of plan what you wanted to do in advance and no one was directly attacking you. And you could like if you got too overwhelmed, as I did, you could just like pause it and like it's fine or like just, you know. Um, but now a day, like things are coming at you very quickly and I, it makes me panic. And so like my go-to move for video games now is like hit pause and hand the controller to someone else. <laughs> they, I they like that. gotten way too advanced for me. <laughs> I'm the same way. Like there's very specific games that I like to play. Like my entire life, like I've loved Pokemon because I think it's kind of the same thing where yes. they're not attacking you. Like you can take, okay, well, if I'm going to go battle this person, then I can do this and this and you can kind of plan ahead and like Halo and those games I I get too overwhelmed I can't do it so no I, I also played Pokemon as a kid and like you could just like oh. sit in the menu for a while and like choose like yep. attack or like choose a spell or like it, it just it, it it felt like so much um less stressful than video games yes. really are now a hundred percent I'm so interested like what is the book that got you into fantasy as a kid the Lioness Quartet series by Tamora Tamara Pierce. Mm -hmm. That was like the series where I was just like, oh my God, like this, this girl, this young girl, she can do whatever the heck she wants to do. Like she's strong, she's smart. Um, and I also loved Ella Enchanted. Mm, okay. uh, I yeah. think by Gail Carson Levine. I loved those books when I was a kid. Uh, but I just, I've always loved, loved, loved fantasy which is why I was so excited to read Kindling because like I said, I'm obsessed with fantasy, like fantasy and romance. Those are my two main genres. But like I said, this book, like I feel like it changed my brain chemistry, the way that I looked at the world that you had created and the way, and especially like with second person, cause I don't know if I've ever actually read a book in second person. So, and like, it took my brain a couple of chapters to kind of get used to it. Cause I was like, this is so different than what I'm used to. But now, you know, that I finished the book, I can't imagine that book being written any other way because it was such a unique perspective and like it made me care about these characters and become invested in what was going on. I feel like so much more than first or third could have done, at least with this book. And like just the way, like I said, it made me think about certain things. Like I'm telling you, this book is like one of my favorite books of the year. I am just, it was nothing like what I expected but it was so much more than I could have imagined, if that makes any sense. Um, and it is inspired by kind of classic films such as Seven Samurai and The Magnificent Seven and stuff. So why those films and where did this story come from? Like, how did it, how did this story kind of take seed in your brain? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, well, thank you so much for this. Just like reading so carefully and like taking the story into your heart. That, that really means so it much to me. And I'm so appreciative and grateful. Um, yeah. Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. So I have like a decades long history with these movies. Um, when I was 
in college, I was back home for the summer. I was working at the local movie theater and, you know, my boss and my colleagues, they were all such like film people. Um, and so like, you know, in between like sweeping the theater, like cleaning the popcorn machine or whatever, we would just kind of like spend a lot of time talking about movies. And so I asked them, I was like, okay, this sounds so interesting. You're also passionate about it. Like what are some movies, like classic movies that I should check out? And so they made me this very long list that I made like a tiny dent in, right? <laughs> but on that list were Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. And so I, this was like back in the time of movie rentals. <laughs> and so I went to like the local movie rental shop um, and I got Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. Uh, it was like, it was so great because I could rent these for like a dollar for 24 for hour rental. And so like two bucks to watch these movies. Um, I, I watched them almost back to back. Um, Seven Samurai is super long, so not quite back to back. But, I, you know, I watched them in quick succession and then came back and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like, this is amazing. How did I not know about these? These movies are so good. Um, and I mean, they just did that thing where like they they settle in your heart right and they, they kind of set you on fire imaginatively um and so what i really loved about about both of them and they are they are um different in tone right but they're both about kind of these somewhat jaded soldier warrior types right in seven samurai it's samurai kind of after they've they've had all these battles and in magnificent seven um they're cowboys and so that's kind of after the civil war um and they are kind of wandering around not quite knowing what they're about what to do with their lives um they don't really have a mission yet um and then some poor farmers come like ask them for help defending their village from a bunch of bandits. Um, they, you know, in, in various forms agreed to do that. Seven of them agree. They go, they help prepare this village, you know, for a battle against these bandits. And, and at the very end, there is that battle. And so they both kind of have that same structure. And it's so simple and it's so... Uh, like a slow burn, which is something that I find really interesting and, and quite different from a lot of fantasy stories today. Like it, it really feels like this very long fuse leading up to this like huge battle at the end. Um, but and and so I, I loved kind of that elegance of how cleanly that story could be told. But it also like because it is such a simple plot, it allows for so much character development. And so by the end of this, even though the cast is pretty big, seven samurai or seven cowboys, or in this case, like seven kindlings, you really get to know and love these characters and how kind of tragic they are in, in like their their searching for meaning or searching for one thing or another and and maybe they find it or or maybe they they find it and perish which is also another feature of these films um and i just i mean i i love that and it just it one thing that i could not get away from in, in doing the retelling of this these stories is like they are fundamentally trying to do the best they can to make the world a better place with the tools that they have. And I, I just, oh, I am a sucker for that kind of story. And you do a very, you do it very well where you take the inspiration from those films, but you make it so uniquely your own in this book. Like as you're kind of talking about the, you know, the themes and stuff in those movies, they're definitely present in Kindling, but they're so 
specific and they're so unique. Like I'm telling you, like I could just spend, I swear, like 20 minutes just telling you how much I loved this damn book. Pardon my language. <laughs> but, and it's also, this book is also a very unique take on like the war hero trope where like you said with Seven Samurai, it's kind of after the war and Magnificent Seven, there are these cowboys, but those are adults and these are kids. I mean, they're, they're children. They're not, they're not mature, full-grown adults. Now, and some, you know, are much more young than others. Some are a little bit older. There's a certain character who's also very young. But it takes place after the war, not during. And it really makes readers kind of consider and think about what happens, you know, after this massive conflict is over, you know, which is something that in a lot of books we really only see, you know, in three pages in an epilogue. Like we very, I feel like we very rarely get these books that take place after this huge thing that happened. Why did you approach it from this angle? And why did you choose kids? Like, why did you choose these people who were children who they had to grow up because of the environment that they were placed in? Like, it's just, it's, it's, oh, this book is so good. It's just, it's so freaking good. But okay, so why did you choose to do children? And why did you choose to kind of do that take on the war hero trope? Yeah, I think, I mean, one of those is like a, a shorter answer and um, it's about like why set it after the war. And and that kind of goes back to these the inspiration of Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. It, it's not about a war, right? It's about this actually very small scale kind of, you know, when you think about it, a little bit low stakes. It's about defending one poor village um, from some roving bandits, right? And, and that's it's such a small story compared to like saving the entire world from evil or, or, or like, you know, your country's fighting against another. And so I really kind of like the idea of, of writing about something, something quite small, something that maybe might not make a difference in the grand scheme of things, but does, it is life or death for the characters who are who are living it for the people who are involved in it and and it is this very high stakes moment for for everyone it touches and so so i i really love that aspect of it um and i also yeah i couldn't get away from it being kind of after the war because of those inspirations the the one about you know the question about like why children why kids uh and that goes back to why I decided to to kind of write this book in the first place. And and actually, you know, it took me years to to decide to do this. I, I fell in love with Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven, you know, in my late teens, <laughs> right? I was like 19, 20 maybe. Um, and it was like, why retell them? Because the story, like those films are so good and so complete. And they don't need to necessarily be retold in, in that way. Like there's there's nothing new to say or to add maybe. And so I was just like, well, I'll let those be, be I'll let them kind of exist uh, in their like perfect forms the way that they are, you know, coming out of like the 1950s and, and 1960. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I, I saw the most recent remake of Magnificent Seven, um, the one with Denzel Washington, uh, directed by Antoine Fuqua. And like, it's it was so flashy and it, it did change some, it had that same structure. It had kind of those same characters who are fundamentally trying to do good for the world around them. Um, but it did have like a little bit of a difference in kind of the bad guy instead of like a roving group of bandits. It was kind of more about um, capitalistic greed. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I was like, okay, 
you know, what could I change about this story that would make it worth telling now in like the 21st century? Like, what would I have to say about our world now through kind of the lens of this very old story? Um, and I was thinking about it, thinking about it, couldn't come up with anything until I started thinking about like, what if it was YA? And if it was YA, because that's kind of, that's what I write, that's um, something that I'm really interested in is writing for teenagers and about teenagers. Um, if it was YA, they would have to be teens, right? The, the main characters would have to be young. And if they were young, and they were, you know, these seven samurai types, these magnificent seven types that meant that they would have to have kind of this background of battle experience. Okay, what kind of world would require child soldiers? Like what kind of world would do this to the young people, um, force them to fight, and then after the war is over, kind of set them loose like this? And then I was like, okay, okay, maybe that's something. And like, what if they had this magic that you could only really be effective um, if you were young, like old, older adults couldn't use it because they'd you know, burn out too quickly. And, and burnout in the book is something that happens. The more that you use the magic, the more that it kind of siphons your life away. So it shortens your lifespan. So if you're, you know, 30 years old going to battle, you're going to have maybe a few months of fighting with this very powerful magic before you, you it kills you. But if you're like 12 years old on the battlefield, maybe you could have you know, six or seven years um, of usefulness to your country, right? Before this magic claims you. And I was like, okay, now this is something like, what if we, what if this is a world that is sending its children to fight and die for a future that they might never see for a future that is not guaranteed to them. They're fighting for everyone else. They're giving up their life for everyone else. And, you know, it made me think about how, when we were younger, and certainly when our parents and grandparents were younger, we did have this sense of like, yes, there is a future for you. Yes, there there it will be stability, right? You are you are maybe not guaranteed, but there's like the the offer of, you know, a stable full time job that will see you through to retirement, and you'll be able to afford a house on you know a a you know, a middle-class salary and you'll be able to have kids and send them to college. Uh, you'll be able to rely on the institutions um, that are around you. And I look around now and I just don't know if our children today feel that same sense of hope and promise and security in their future, right? When you think about global instability, mass shootings in their schools, uh, you know, climate instability. There's so many unknowns and uncertainties now that I don't think that we had to face when we were young. And at the same time, these young people, as they are facing this uncertain future, they also are rising up to fight for themselves and for us right they are they are they are the ones who are making so much noise um about climate change or about mass shootings or you know they're getting involved in politics in a way that that i don't know that young people of of my generation or maybe my parents generation were doing right and, and but because it feel that is so urgent that they that they take up arms for us in in this way 
oh, and I think about, you know, but should they have to, you know, should they have done that? Should we have tried to tried harder to solve those problems before we got here? And so all of that went into kind of like this, this story of, of these kindlings, these child soldiers who were, you know, asked to give their lives for this country that later that that at the time could not promise them a future and then later abandon them. And, and so this this story I, I was writing specifically for young people today. And I feel like that's not a perspective that I've seen a lot of yet, you know, in in YA and and certainly not in YA fantasy. I think it could be wrong, but you know, that that seemed like something new to say, right? And to speak to. And that to me made this story worth retelling. that that's just one of the reasons like that encompasses why I loved this damn book so much because it everything you just said like that comes through in your writing and in these characters and in the world that you've created and it's such a powerful book on so many different levels like this book is so good Tracy like it's <laughs> it's so freaking good like on so many levels and so there was a review that I wanted to mention because it was a couple days after I finished the book, I was on Goodreads and I was looking at um, some of the reviews of the book. And there was, because like I said, I was still thinking about it, which is very rare for me several days later, but there was one reviewer, her name was Victoria. And she wrote something that really kind of captures the tone of this book so well for me. Um, she said, this is a story about loss, about death, about trauma, about societally acceptable child soldiers who are used and discarded apathetically for their magic, who are used as tools to further an end and then are promptly discarded. And that just like going back to what you just kind of talked about, like it, it's just captured in those tones and those themes are just captured so well in this world and so, so well in your writing. And I do want to ask, how long did this book take you to write? If you don't mind me asking. Oh, um, let's see. I was rewatching the most recent Magnificent Seven in the pandemic. And so that was, I think, uh, July of, it was the summer of 2020, I think. 2020. I think I had this idea. Yeah. Um, and, and so we kind of wrapped up um, edits on it last year. So what was that? 2023 years, I think. Yeah. Nice. Like I said, I could literally spend this entire talk just telling you how good this book is. And that's that's one of the reasons why. Because like I said, I mean, I feel like I'm just repeating myself at this point <laughs> because it's so good, but it's just, it's so complex. Uh, it's also written in second person, which like I mentioned earlier, is something I almost never see. So what was your reasoning behind using that kind of point of view? Oh, I did not want to write it in second person. I <laughs> resisted it for a long time. And so when, you know, I had this idea, I was thinking about like child soldiers and like this, this kindling magic. And like, you know, I had that structure of Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven to fall back on. Um, and so these days I spend quite a lot of time up front trying to figure out the tone, the POV, kind of the language of a story before I really get too deep into it. So I'll rewrite the first page or the first few pages over and over and over again 
until I feel like I've kind of landed on it and I've reached something that can be sustainable for an entire novel, 400 pages. And so like, you know, I, I kind of wrote the first page or so in, in third and I was like, okay, this is something. And then the very next draft, this is a second draft. I went back recently and was looking at this second draft. I wrote it in first person plural. So like in the Royal we, and I was like, whoa, this feels, this feels good and interesting and different, but also who does that, <laughs> right? How could I possibly write an entire book from this perspective? Um, and so I like immediately the next draft, I was like, no, we're going back to like just first person singular. Like we're going back to like regular third person. Um, and I kind of just ran away from <laughs> kind of these more adventurous points of views for a while, like 10 drafts. I feel like I was resisting it, but there was something about that second draft written first person plural that was fascinating and urgent and interesting and you know when I was thinking about that like who is this we that's telling this story who is who is narrating I came you know upon this idea of like the book which is like mostly in second person right but every so often you'll hear a little we uh, thrown in there um and I was thinking about the idea of like a Greek chorus that is kind of in the background, kind of narrating what's going on. It happens a lot in tragedies, like these ancient Greek tragedies. Um, and I was thinking about like, okay, if this is a, a chorus of sorts, that's kind of telling the story, but also interacting with the audience in a, in a way that normally narrators don't do, like telling the audience, like, this is how you should feel about this. Um, this is what's going on. Who could those characters be? And I came upon this idea of dead kindlings they are the ghosts of these other child soldiers who have been felled in battle or they've burned out and i i really like the idea of them just kind of like floating about behind and around these main characters narrating to the characters the story of their own lives um and so that's where the you comes in. That's where the second person comes in. You're walking along, you pet your dog, you see the mountains, you're doing this, you're thinking this, but really you're lying to yourself. <laughs> um, you're really like feeling this in a very deep way that you're completely in denial about. Um, and, and that allowed me to do quite a few things actually, right? The second person allowed me to kind of get into the heads of these characters who are so traumatized by their experiences, who are so um, out of touch with, with their emotions and their feelings as, you know, kind of a defense, right? Because to allow themselves to feel those things would be incapacitating in, in a lot of ways. And so it allowed me to kind of have this narrator who can just call out the characters on, on when they're being untruthful with themselves and with the audience. And it also, right, allowed the language to be kind of like, soaring and ethereal and beautiful at times because they're ghosts right and then at the other time because they are the ghosts of children they could like be like very down to earth very petty very jealous like very blunt and so like having this this very strange point of view that's mostly in second but it is secretly right this first person plural tragic chorus of dead child soldiers <laughs> allowed me to do so many things with this story that I could not have have possibly done with third person or just kind of first person singular. And so that was a really exciting artistic challenge. Um, 
but also a, a huge challenge because not a lot of uh, novels try to do this because <laughs> it is it is a lot to have that you constantly coming at you right um as you are reading along but you know there's just no other way that I could have written this story I think yeah and I agree like I said my brain it took me a couple chapters because I was like I've never I don't think I've ever read a book from second person and so like I said once my brain kind of figured out how to interpret it I guess I can't I can't imagine reading it any other way like the second person it just it allows you to see into these characters and like you said call these characters out and you know certain <laughs> things and it's just it's a very effective point of view for this book uh you also have seven different points of view you know one for each character in this book which is a lot and a yeah. lot of the times like I said I read like 180 books a year so I read a lot a lot of them are multi-POV and unfortunately, you know, there's some times where these multi POV books, they can kind of blend and the characters aren't differentiated. Uh, but you have managed to give us such distinct voices for each one. And honestly, it's like one of the best multi POV books I've ever read. And the fact that it's seven just blows my mind that you were able to do this. <laughs> Why did you choose to give each girl their own voice? And how did you make sure that each one was so unique? Oh, well, thank you so much. I'm so glad it was effective. I mean, that was that was a real challenge because it is technically all that one dead ghost chorus narrator, right? To give them a little bit more subtlety in their language or their attention or the way that they kind of interact with the world was, was a big challenge. And so I'm so glad that it was successful for you. Um, the Kindlings, uh, boy, um, they were they were hard to get into at first, but it felt important that if I was going to take this story of this ensemble cast of characters, seven samurai or seven cowboys, if I was going to take it into a novel form, it felt important to give each one of those perspectives its due and make it interesting and also important and have something else to say. Um, but it did take me a while to find those voices to to kind of hone in on Liam, the, the character who we start out with being like very blunt and very grumpy, but all of that gruffness is really like, she is also the one who's most invested in them being together as a family and keeping them all together and taking care of people, right? Cause to kind of hone in on that or, um, or um, Amara, who is another of the kindlings, we get to her perspective, I think maybe four POVs in, she is, a former enemy of theirs. She fought on the other side during the war. And at the same time, right, she's like trying to fight for acceptance within this group. She's also the most fun and the most charming of them all. She, she And to give her that kind of fun partying vibe, like I made her voice a little bit more rolling like she she writing in her POV was like writing a, a stone rolling downhill like with that same kind of rhythm of like well I'm gonna go here and I'm gonna do this I'm gonna affect this person's life I'm gonna affect this person's life and so so finding all of that in like this again very subtle way so I'm so glad that you picked up on it was again a challenge but it felt really important to kind of the project of the book now I do want to ask and I'm not going to say names because I don't want to ruin the book you know and do spoilers but there are just like you know in these classic films there are a couple characters who they die 
Yeah. Did you know when you started writing who you wanted to die and how? Because there's some, there's these very heroic deaths where they're not, okay, I'm saving thousands and thousands and thousands of people. I'm not changing the world, you know, but their, their deaths are so impactful and they're so meaningful. Like, did you know who you wanted to, unfortunately, you know, kill off at the beginning? And did you know how you wanted them to kind of expire? Uh, yes, I did. This is, <laughs> I mean, those deaths are so important to mm-hmm. the story of Seven Samurai and Magnificent Seven. Um, and like, I mean, you, I don't think that you could retell those, these stories without having those deaths at the end. And so partially I, I chose the characters that would perish based on the the characters that perished in Seven Samurai um, or or the characters that lived, you know, in those. Um, I, I wanted to choose those kind of based on kind of the, the source material as to how they would die. Um, I read I read this piece of writing advice a long time ago, and I just I wish that I could remember where I where I came across it now, but I can't. But it's like, you know, if you're going to kill someone off, if you're an author going to kill off a character, you know, make that character the one who is the most in love with life or the one who has the most to lose. Right. Or the one um, who is who is giving up the most. And, and so I let that guide me in a lot of cases. And then I also like. Because their deaths, in my opinion, are pretty tragic um, and, and pretty sad. I wanted to give them deaths that were worthy of them also. You know what I mean? Like I didn't want them to be throwaways that you could just kind of skim over and not let kind of sink into your heart. And so that was really important to me too. like give them the most glorious if they wanted glory or the most poetic if if you know or the most ironic or or kind of the they were they were saving the thing that meant the most to them and so that was important to me too they were utterly heartbreaking I was so like I understood and but like it hurt my heart to watch the characters (laughs) that pass like to watch them die because like I said they were very powerful deaths like I said, even though they weren't saving millions and millions and millions of people, you know, their death didn't define whether or not this country would survive, like, because of their stories and because of their histories, you know, in the war and just them themselves as characters, it was just, it was impactful, but it was so heartbreaking. I was so sad. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say about that, because I'll spoil something if I keep talking about it. <laughs> but you also, like the main cast... Um, they are LGBTQ plus characters and you have some incredible, beautiful romance in this book. Like you have this beautiful representation. You have a non-binary character. Like why was this kind of representation important to you to have? In this oh, book? thank you. I'm, I'm happy um, that that representation came across. I, I will say that they're not all LGBTQ plus characters. Okay. Um, and that's, that's, you know, because we don't get into it. So we don't technically know for, for a lot of them, but yes, they're, they're um, one of the characters, uh, Kat, uh, she's a lesbian. She's only attracted to, to women and, and Canver is non-binary. So uh, they use they, they, them pronouns throughout the entire thing. It's in, in this world, I intentionally made it uh, a more egalitarian world when it comes to gender and sexuality than our own. Um, first, because I feel like that kind of representation 
is 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 one of the things that fantasy and science fiction can do like we can imagine a world that is more egalitarian and more just than our own uh, in certain ways i wouldn't say the world of kindling is <laughs> entirely just but but when it comes to gender and sexuality sure um and so so part of that was you know i wanted to create a world where where we could imagine this kind of equality um and then also to have mimicked or mirrored the same injustices that we have in our world would have really changed the story in kind of different ways. And I feel like that's that's important to talk about, you know, female child soldiers, like what that would be like in a world where women are seen or women and, and other non, um, sorry, women and other marginalized genders are seen as less than, you know, cis male um, genders. But Again, that, that, I mean, that would have changed the story. And I feel like it's important to talk about, but it didn't quite feel like the project of this one. I don't know that I could have gotten, <laughs> I feel like it would have taken me many, many more hundreds of pages um, than just the 400. And so, so yes, there's there's importance in both, but for, for me, for this one, it felt important to have um, characters who, represented a, a more just, a, a more egalitarian world. Uh, Liam, for example, is asexual, aromantic, um, not interested in it. Uh, we don't get into this. Amara, in my head, uh, you know, is is pan. And and so like these things are there and I, and I do, and it sounds like they kind of came up to the surface even though maybe mm -hmm. they're not explicitly on the page all the time. Um, but yeah, we don't get to get into it for all of them. Um, but I do imagine that it is, a more accepting world. Um, and I think that's, I hope that's important and, and valuable for, for readers to see. It was, and it was wonderful to read because there's certain characters where, like I said, there's this beautiful romance that happens and like within the group, like it wasn't like, oh my goodness, like they're gay, they're, you know, non-binary. Like it wasn't an issue. Like these characters just existed and this was who they this is who they are. Like, it's not this huge thing that we find, you know, in real life a lot of the times. Like, okay, their conflict and their issues stem from them being pansexual or asexual or whatever it is. Like, that's just who they are and they're accepted like that. And it was, it, I'm, I'm just, I love this book so much. There's so many different levels and layers to this book. Um, and so I really, I really love like, like, it was just, it was a non-issue that these characters were who they were. Um, now, with all of this that you spoke about, because like I like I said, there's so many different layers, so many things within this book. What is the main thing that you want readers to take away from this book? Oh boy, I hope it makes readers think and reflect and question. You know, and I and I feel like everyone brings their own experiences to to a book and so they'll they'll take away different things and and I hope that there's enough here that will sit with with many different types of readers and many different types of experiences and backgrounds and things that are going on in their own lives and so you know if that's the the tragic deaths at the end great or or if that's you know thinking about a a more equal world great or or you know if it's thinking about how this reflects on our own expectations and promises that we've broken for our young people great or or if it's just like man this magic is cool like also great um 
I try not to be, especially writing for young people, I try not to be too prescriptive, right? I, I, I try not to have like a message that I want people to get, but I, but I do hope that they have a similar experience to you where like, it just, it sits with them and it lingers with them and they think about it and reflect on it. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's, I feel like the dream is to have a book make its way into a reader's heart. I, I want to ask, and this is a completely selfish question. Are you doing like a tour for this book? Are you doing any like events or festivals this year, like Y'all West or Y'all Fest or anything like that? Uh, for me, I'm doing a launch party for the first time since 2018. Nice. <laughs> so that's going to be in the Bay Area on March first. Um, but but other than that, I'm hoping to like really knuckle down and kind of work on the next thing this year. Oh, I'm excited. And of course, I'm out of town on the first, like I'm out of the country. It's not just that I'm out of oh, the no. town, like I'm out of the country, because <laughs> otherwise I would totally go to that. I would totally make the drive because I'm in California. Now, let's transition to our rapid fire, kind of our closing questions. You can be as in detail as you want, or you can be as short and sweet as you want. Okay. So what is your favorite genre to read? Uh, well, you it's I mean, it's speculative fiction, right? Of course, but I do want to like shout out to poetry. I, I always have like a, a poetry book on my desk or by my bedside. And I like to read a couple poems before work or a couple poems before bed. Um, and so kind of those two, speculative and then also poetry are my favorites. What is your all-time favorite book? Like if you could recommend one speculative fiction book and we'll do one poetry book. I, I'm totally oh, going to put no, you on the spot for this. <laughs> what would you What would you recommend? Okay. I feel like this is unfair and I hate you for it, but also I love <laughs> it and make me think about it. Um, I'm going to cheat, uh, of course. So I want to say that The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemisin, um, amazing, incredible book, like with like tectonic magic and, but, and like this really, again, interesting make you think about our own systems of inequality kind of thing. And also there's second person in that one. I'm not sure if you've read it. It's incredible. Um, it's, it's amazing. And it, it, it just, it's a world changing kind of book. And so, so I love the fifth season. I also really love um, the paper menagerie by Ken Liu. It's a collection of short stories and, the the titular story, The Paper Menagerie, is just one of those. It's such a beautiful, and again, small scale compared to the, the fifth season, um, small scale story about, you know, a, a boy and his his mother. And it's just incredible poetry. I have to say, one of, one of my favorites is, you know what I like to do is I like to go into the National Book Award long list for the previous year and kind of pick out a couple books from the long list because they're always so fascinating and so different. And one of them that I found on that, I think I found it on that one, um, is by a poet called Chen Chen. And it has a very long title. And I, I, I might get this wrong, but I think it's, when I grow up, I want to be a list of further possibilities. And incredible. Like I think it's um, his debut poetry collection. And it was just... I read it a few years ago and it's one I always, always go back to. And so, yeah, yes, it's, I, also, I totally I, put you on the spot there, I but know, it was totally self-serving because 
I try and ask <laughs> authors these questions because I was like, I need to increase my already ever-growing list of books that I need to buy. So I just, you know, just kind of slid that in there. So I apologize, sure. but not really. <laughs> Wait, can I shout out another one? I'm so sorry. Uh, absolutely. You have done this to yourself though. Um, I would love to shout out. Um, when I was in college, my friend and I went to a reading by poet Adrian Rich. Um, and my friend got me um, a poetry collection of hers called The Fact of a Doorframe. And that one that I, I mean, that's one that I've had for decades and I go back to it again and again. And so I really love Adrienne Rich's poetry as well. I will add, I will add all of those to my list. Shocker. Oh no, I have to buy more books. That's (laughs) terrible. I know. (laughs) Now, if you could write one trope that you haven't written already, what would it be? Games and trials. This is like my one of my favorite things to read. It doesn't matter how bad or good a book is. If there's like some sort of game, like tournament trial thing that the characters have to go to, I am in. I will read it. I will watch the whole thing um, and I will love it every step of the way. So I really love to write a games and trials book sometime. Very nice. Well, here we go. We're manifesting for the future that you yeah. write one of those. <laughs> now, what are you currently reading and what is on your TBR list next? Oh, I, I got this. I got, I've got some books to show you. So right now, let's see, I'm currently reading The Creative Act, A Way of Being by Rick Rubin. I think this one came out last year and it's like kind of these short, a few pages long meditations on the creative life. And I I love, I feel like there are a lot of craft books out there, but there are fewer books on like what it means to be creating stuff and what it means to be an artist and and why we do it and how we can think about our approach. And, and that's, I'm only like a few, you know, I'm not even halfway through this yet. Um, But that's kind of what this book is. And so I'm really enjoying, it's like poetry where I'll just, I'll read a few of these meditations or or kind of pages per night. Um, And then here on my desk is I have this poetry collection. I haven't started it yet. A Thousand Mornings by Mary Oliver. I've never read any Mary Oliver poetry except on the internet when it comes across like my Tumblr dashboard. (laughs) Um, and so I want to kind of make an effort to kind of, you know, read it in a more intentional way. I am, this one I'm taking my sweet time with. This is a, a poetry collection called Best Barbarian by Roger Reeves. I heard him read, um, gosh, it was a while ago. I think it was in 2022. He's, um, at the National Book Award finalist. Uh, reading in New York City and his reading was just incredible. The the way that he read it, I was like, I have to get this book. And so I got it. And I'm slowly, very slowly, because the writing is so intense and so dense and so beautiful, very slowly making my way through it. The other one that's on my list uh, for this month is Her Body and Other Parties by Carmen Maria Machado. I have not read this one yet, but I read a short story of hers called Inventory, which you can find online, that is... like it's a post-apocalyptic love story I would say and it's just it's it's an inventory it's a list of all of the lovers the main characters has had in her entire life and so it's really interesting to to kind of chart the end of the world this apocalypse through this list through this inventory and I was like this is amazing and I really wanted to check out you know what else this author had and so I snapped up that short story collection right away that sounds good I'm yeah. that seems like it's a very unique perspective on the apocalypse. I'm 
I'm gonna have to read that one. That's yeah, exciting. Yeah, it's very easy to find. Just search inventory and Carmen Maria Machado and it'll pop right up for freezies to read. That's another self-serving question because I'm gonna have <laughs> yeah. to add all of those to my list. Yes, yes. Now, what is the most valuable piece of advice you've received in regards to your writing? Hold fast. Um, and I, and I really like this one or, you know, stay the course where, um, you know, I was in grad school and I was writing kind of like these weird speculative things in uh, among a cohort that was writing literary adult, like realistic fiction. And so I had this one workshop where I had written like this fairy tale retelling with weird POVs and like scenes repeated and like talking frogs and like all sorts of like these wild and magical and wonderful things that I love. I got that book, sorry, that story got so beat up in that workshop. No one, no one got it. And I just, I sat there very quietly, like listening to all of these critiques from people who did not get it. And then one of my colleagues came up to me after class and he was like, don't listen to any of them. They don't know what they're talking about. What you're doing is awesome and you need to stick with it because there's something there. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. Someone gets it. And it was just so encouraging to know that like, if one person gets it, that's enough, right? If, if it sticks with one person, that, that could be enough. I, I I've done my job. And so still writing fantastical, strange POV stuff <laughs> decades later. Well, that question, I know shocker that a lot of these questions are self-serving, but that's also a self-serving question for me because I'm also a writer and I'm just starting to query my YA kind of gothic fantasy that I've written like the last three or four years. It was like, it was a midterm in my gothic literature class. And then it evolved into my thesis and like it evolved from a story that I wrote in second grade. Like it's like the story like of my heart. And so I, I really like that advice because it gets hard sometimes just, I'm sure, you know, just like the writing process in general, there's times where you're just like, what am I doing? doing like is this even worth spending all of this time and this brain power on um so hold fast I like that I feel like I need to like print that out and put that on my wall instead of me <laughs> okay also a self-serving self-serving question I'm going to shoot this one right back at you what is the best piece of writing advice you have ever received trust your gut like it's so cliche I feel like but like if something's not working and you're like, there's a reason why, like, just, just trust your instincts. And if it's, if it's something that you truly love to do, like, like kind of like what you just said, where it's like, these people don't understand what, what we're doing, what I'm writing about, whatever, but like, and you know that you were supposed to put this story out in the world at some, in some way or another, or this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like, just, just trust your gut, trust your instincts and just keep going. It's, yeah, it sounds cliche, but I feel like it, it it's true. I love so. that. Yeah. And I love that you're working on a story that's been with you since, I think you said second grade, right? A long like, time. That's the kind of thing, <laughs> that thing that haunts you for all of those years that is just dying to get out. Yes, that is the thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Now, if you weren't an author, you know, money, experience, education, none of that stuff mattered. What would you be doing for work? Writing video games. I mean, nice. I don't know if that's like a cheat because like it's still writing technically. Um, but yeah, I feel like in another life, some somehow I went into video games instead of going into literature. Literature. I like it. Now, if you could invite any person over for dinner, dead or alive, who would you invite? 
I think my grandma, who I never got to meet, she died quite young. And I think it would be really wonderful to have her kind of see what happened to her granddaughter and like how she turned out. You know, I think that would be really lovely. And see everything that you've accomplished and whatnot. That's beautiful. Now, if you could invite a fictional person over for dinner, who would you invite? Okay, so here's the problem is that a lot of fictional people are terrible, right? They're so flawed and like you would just not want to spend time with them. Okay, but I was thinking, okay, maybe Leslie Nope from Parks and Rec because so upbeat and I feel like I have a, <laughs> I have a little illustration of Leslie Nope on my wall. It says I'm super chill all the time. I feel like she is... <laughs> she is me in a lot of ways but she hates the library she does not like she does she they does all hate the library she likes parts right um and so like i worry about that situation um but i am i recently i'm years late on this but i recently started watching ted lasso um and so I feel like even though Ted Lasso is like a sports guy, he is also like in that very upbeat, very open, like very kind of giving personality that might be really lovely to spend a few hours with. And if he did not like my food, he would not tell me. He would tell me, he would lie to my face and tell me it was great. And I right. would believe him. Unless you serve tea. If you serve oh, tea, yeah. he would spit oh, that out God. and tell you. I know that's true. <laughs> <laughs> now I do want to ask because I l- freaking I love Parks and Rec I love Ted Lasso but I love Parks and Rec like that's one of the ones that we play in the background like sometimes mm-hmm. just you know for noise is Leslie exactly is Leslie your favorite character in Parks and Rec oh absolutely I mean she she is me in so many ways <laughs> except with Parks instead of <laughs> instead of Bugs yeah what is your favorite episode oh gosh Ah, I would say maybe the one where April and Andy get married is just like a really kind of lovely one. But I also really like, I I, I think it's the end of the fifth or sixth season where they have that huge music festival in Pawnee. Harvest. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. The huge music, and they like, they get so many people and it's just like, I one of the things that I love so much about that show is it's people who care very deeply trying their hardest again to make the world a better place and like I love like seeing it when they can succeed at doing that and I feel like yes the harvest festival is an example of that or like that big music festival um, is another example and so like those moments when the characters like see all of their hard work pay off in a way that benefits them and the community that they love like yes give me more of that is it is it the unity festival yes that's it okay i was like i know i said harvest festival but yes yes, the unity festival very nice now where is a place that you haven't visited that you would like to one domestically and one internationally i would love to go to Cambodia one day and this is like again a decades old dream of mine I should have gone a long time ago but like I feel like when I was in middle school I saw Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie in it and like she she goes to Angkor Wat and it's just so beautiful to it's like to see these these old old buildings and the trees growing out of them and I just growing up in California you know we don't have 
that kind of old, old architecture in the same way. Um, and so I really love it when I get to ex experience or go to these places where you can kind of feel the history whispering around you. And so, so I would love to go to Cambodia and specifically Angkor Wat one day, although I've heard it's very touristy, I would try and go like at the least touristy time possible. Now, what about domestically? I have on my cork board, a map of the 50 states where you can scratch off ones that you have nice. not, not been to. And so I'm slowly scratching them off. I've never been to Hawaii. Um, and so I would love to go do that one day. See some whales. Very nice. Now, last question. What currently brings you joy? Consistently, my doggies. <laughs> Um, uh, my, my oldest dog, she's going to be 15 in April. She's, she's really old and she's like a black lab. And so that's, that's old for a black lab kind of mix. Um, and she's, she's getting up there. She's showing her age. She had to have major surgery last year. Um, but seeing her on a walk where she gets to like run around off leash, like in the woods, she's so happy. Like, like that little pep in her step, that little giddy up when she's like, Woo here I go at my old lady dog pace is just, it, it makes me laugh every single time. And I, I really love it. It's just, it's, it's so pure and so joyous. And the fact that she's still around, still, still kicking and still can have that joy. Um, and that I can be a part of giving her that joy is, is really, really special. That's beautiful. What kind of dog is your other dog? Cause you said you have two dogs, right? Yeah. Or yeah. The other dog, she's nine she's gonna be nine this year and she is what we thought was gonna be some kind of she's a rescue like some kind of german shepherdy type because she has that coloring but she ended up much smaller and much rounder like she's like a little <laughs> roll with german shepherd coloring and little <laughs> floppy ears um and so that's that's a tongue <laughs> very nice well thank you so much tracy for being here Honestly, it was an honor. Like I said, I'm obsessed with this book. This book is absolutely incredible on so many different levels. And it was just, it truly was an honor to talk to you. So thank you so much for being here. This was wonderful. I'm so glad we got to have this conversation and like hear about your experiences and, and kind of your answer to these questions too. Ella Enchanted, right? Like, great. <laughs> and so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a real joy. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And before I sign off, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to tune in. If you want to stay up to date on episodes and announcements, please subscribe or follow me at The Real Bookish Writer or at The Well-Read Podcast on Instagram. Thank you again for listening and have a magical day. See you next week.